Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Well, you know, it's funny. Naeem was talking about happiness this morning. Yeah, I do. Thanks, man. How many of you feel, how many of you are feeling pretty happy this morning? Yeah, well, none of you are as happy as I am. Let me tell you why. I just got back from the happiest place on earth. (laughs) Can I just, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you just a little, a little snippet into what my life was like for the past week. Now, most people, you went away on vacation. You went to Florida. Yeah, I enjoyed the Florida sun. I ate, and you're going to, I ate more food than I've ever eaten in my life. And you'll understand why in a second. Now, they say it is the most, right, the happiest place on, on the planet. Well, I'll tell you why I'm, not ha- I, I'm happy to be here and why I wasn't happy for those few days. The stomach bug from hell, yeah, yeah, hit all of the kids. Here is my brother-in-law. They're not here today. My brother-in-law, Ryan, they, they attend church here. The one, th- he is the most laid-back guy. If you don't know him, he is reserved. He is the sweetest guy in the world. The only thing the guy wanted all week, this is all he wanted. I'm, I'm not kidding you. He wanted his daughter, Paige, my niece, on his shoulders as Tinkerbell is coming down in Magic Kingdom for the fireworks show. That's all he wanted. There we are the whole day. She's in a princess outfit. Everything's great. It's the moment. It's nine o'clock, right? The fireworks show is ready. And there, there she is. The spotlight hits Tinkerbell. And I'm thinking, man, imagine like the, somebody cut the wire or something like and Tinkerbell. Whatever, that's bad. I shouldn't even say that to you. But the things that were going through my mind, listen, Magic Kingdom is my least favorite place on the planet. So there it is. Tinkerbell starts coming down. She's on his shoulders, throws up all over him, all over the place. Now, you know me, germs, right? Instead of getting water for my brother-in-law, I step back. Some guy that works there, right? There's like this white tape and everything is like coordinated. And he's like, sir, you have to move. And I said, I'm not moving anywhere over there. You can move over there near the throw up. I said, I'm not moving over there. She's up all night. Then uh, the, the, uh, their son, Luke, gets the same exact thing. And I said, man, we're home free. We're none of my kids. Jameson's good. Nolan's good. Two days later, we're in Epcot. I don't feel well, daddy. You'll be all right. I'm like, he's not. He's just kidding around. He'll be fine all over the stroller, all over his clothes. So there I am. I have throw up all over me because I'm trying to clean the kid up and change his outfit, right? Now, again, happiest place on the planet. Some guy comes over with, I don't know what chemicals he had, right? To put on the throw up. And he had bags, plastic bags. And I said, sir, I need one of those bags. I have, you know, these clothes. Can you help me out? No, our policy is that we are not allowed to hand out bags. What do you mean? Your policy? I literally said to the guy, this is the happiest place on the planet, right? I literally looked at him. I said, I'm not happy right now. (laughs) Gotta be kidding me. And then I said to Jameson later on, I can only say this because Megan is not here. He still doesn't feel well, the kid. I said to him, this is what Mickey does to people. This is what he does. And you know what the sick part is? I'll be back there again next year. I'll be on It's a Small World after all. And I always say, if there's a hell, it's that listening to that, on that ride, listening to that song over and over and over again. That's hell. That's it. There's nothing worse than that. Oh, my gosh. Mickey, I wanted to punch Mickey by the time I left. 
So, I will never be happier to preach a sermon in this church than I am today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is good to be home. Well, if you weren't here the last few weeks, let's get down to business. If you weren't here the last few weeks, Tom was here, Pastor Tom was here last week, and uh, he preached a wonderful sermon. We've been in the book of Esther before that. This is part three. So if you're coming into the story and you're like, I don't really, where are you? This is the third part. And just to give you a little backdrop, give you a little review, we started out the story and we talked about King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes Xerxes is his Greek name. And we talked about he had this six-month party, this raging party that took place. At the end of the party, he wanted Queen Vashti, his wife, to come out. And we said that first week, really, he wanted her to come out with no clothes on, just her crown. She wouldn't do it. He deposes of her. I'm done with you. And then what happens? His advisors, his little puppets, they come up with this idea and they say, we have a great idea. How about we have a beauty competition? And two weeks ago, it was the bachelor Persian style, right? And you saw that there, all these women were brought in, right? And everybody got their shot with the king and everybody was there. And who wins the beauty contest we entered? None other than Esther. Esther wins. And we said at the end, is that how the story, right? Everybody lives happily ever after, right? Well, you know that's not the case because we wouldn't be here talking about this book still. You see, you have to understand the beginning. We get into the text today. This guy, King Xerxes, picks Esther and he thinks he's getting a Barbie doll. That's what he thinks he's getting. I'm getting this little, you know, sexy woman, right? She's beautiful, attractive, everything I want. Thinks he's getting the Barbie doll, but you know what he's going to find out later on? He's actually going to get a brave heart. He's going to get a warrior. Kind of reminds me of a, a, a story some time ago. You're familiar, we're all familiar with the company Mattel, the toy company. This is a true story. You see, there was a problem because they took the voice boxes on the G.I. Joes and the Barbie dolls got mixed up. So imagine you bought a G.I. Joe doll for your son, right? And there is your son and he's excited and he pulls the string and the doll says, shop till you drop, right? And then little girls were excited when they got their Barbie dolls and they pulled the strings Drop! Let's go! Move it! And they're like, whoa! This is kind of weird. It's not what I expected from my Barbie doll. You see, that's what he thought. He thought he was getting a Barbie doll, but he got a G.I. Joe! He got a warrior! And at the beginning of the story, when we meet her, she's quite passive. She's not a warrior, but ultimately, she will become one. And we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 2, where we left off two weeks ago. Now, she has become queen. And we see, starting in verse 21 of chapter 2, it says in those days, while Mordecai, remember Mordecai is her older cousin. Her parents are deceased. We don't know how they died, but her parents are no longer around. And Mordecai has kind of taken care of her. He's been her guardian. While Mordecai sat within the king's gate, all that means is, that means that he probably had a job for the king. He worked for the king in some capacity. Two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, Doorkeepers became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So that's King Xerxes. This is the new King James. It's just same name, same person. So the mother became known to Mordecai. So the matter, I'm sorry, became known to Mordecai who told Queen Esther and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed and both were hanged on a gallows. 
And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, when it says that there, it's kind of misleading. I want you to understand this. They wouldn't actually be, they, they didn't hang them. They actually would impale people. That sounds worse, right? So if you were accused of a crime and your sentence was death, they would impale you. You didn't want to go down that road, obviously. So we see this here. Mordecai is here. Here's of this plot. And then you move on now to chapter 3. We see the beginning. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set a seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Now you must be going, I'm totally missing something. Didn't this guy Haman, through Esther, just save the king's life? And we're starting the next chapter and we're talking about the villain in the story, right? It kind of doesn't make sense. Because you're looking at it going, this guy saved his life. Shouldn't that guy get a promotion somehow? Right? Where's the love for Mordecai? There is no love here. So the next chapter starts and we see this villain. Now I have to stop. I need some volunteers this morning. This may be a little bit risky. You're going to get one. You're a volunteer because you had the tambourine this morning. Did you know in Jewish synagogues, we're going to have never done something like this. In Jewish synagogues, when the story of Esther is actually read at the Feast of Purim, which is celebrating the time that Esther saved the, the, the Israel, children of Israel, saved the Jewish people. They will actually, when they read the story, here you go, Samuel, you're one, okay? When Haman's name is read in the text, there is booing and they have rattles and they shake them. Who else would like to play along with us? I have six of them. I won't throw one at you. I will hand it to you. Who else would like one? There we go. You want one? Okay. You didn't know that you were coming to... I have two more. Oh, your faces are priceless. Is this really happening in church right now? Yeah, it's happening. It's happening. One more. One more. Yeah, go to the back. We got to spread out the noise. I have no love. There's no love over here. Barbara, you... John, catch that. Nice. Okay. So let's, can we try this to see how, let's, if you can follow instructions when Haman's name is, and actually when Mordecai, we're not going to, when Mordecai's name is read in the text as well, there's cheering. It's pretty interesting, right? But we're just going to do Haman. You can boo. Anybody's allowed to boo. And I'm watching the six of you in here. You better be shaking those little rattles when his name is read. So can we do it, right? Let's, let's start with, uh, all right. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Very good. The son of Hamadatha the Agagite, who advanced... You get it. You get the point, okay? Now, one thing that would be easy for you to miss in this story is right here where I underline the word Agagite. This is wild. You see, there is a beef... That goes back some time. Why do these guys not get along with each other? Why is Haman, why does he despise this guy Mordecai? Well, here's the deal. There you, get to, you didn't follow instructions, but it's okay. All right, at least I know you're awake. Remember, if I read it in the text, okay, class? Right? I'm not, it's, it's not Monday, it's Sunday. You're, you're supposed to, right? You have to listen. So, interesting Agagite here, this goes back to 1 Samuel. You see, in 1 Samuel, there was a king, and the king's name was Saul. Who? I heard something else over there. I'll pretend I didn't hear that. There was a king, his name was Saul. And Saul 
he had, the Jewish people had an enemy, and the enemy was the Amalekites. And they hated each other. This hatred went back all the way to when the Jewish people were released from Egypt, and they're out of bondage. The, the Amalekites attack them. So they have been harboring animosity and hatred for some time. The prophet Samuel comes to, right, comes to, uh, comes to, what did I say? Saul, comes to Saul and says to him, see what Disney did to me? I'm still trying to like, and comes to him and says, you are to destroy all of the Amalekites, even the animals. Now, right, Saul is a pragmatist. So being pragmatic, he says, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep the enemy's best sheep. What he does, he decides, doesn't listen to the prophet who is taught. God has given him a message, does not listen. And then he decides, here's the best part. I'm going to spare the king of the Amalekites. You know what his name was? Agag. So who is this guy, Haman? You'd miss this just reading the story. Haman is a descendant of Agag. Can you see this now? So Amalekites, Agag was the king. He is a descendant of King Agag. When he was a kid, his parents, his grandparents would have told him stories about the Jewish people and what they did to his people. So he has been steeped in this from the time that he is young till this point. He hates, abhors the Jewish people. So you can see here, it makes a little more sense here. Why does Mordecai not bow down or pay homage? If you just read it, you go, I don't know. He just doesn't like this guy. He didn't like the way he was dressed. He didn't like something about him, the way he talked. No, 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 no. He knows that he is a descendant of Agag. He knows he's an Agagite. And he says, I'm not bowing down and worshiping this guy. You with me? All right. So now that makes sense. So moving to three, five, and six, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead... Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So what is happening here is Haman is saying, it's not enough for me to just take out Mordecai. I want to annihilate an entire group of people, mass genocide. Who is Haman, friends? You are the worst class I have ever had to teach in my life. This is the, Mark, this was the worst idea I have ever come up kidding. What's interesting about this is he is, the, he is the first Hitler, right? Think about it. He is the first Hitler, not the first. He's alone, a line of people. Now, if you don't understand or you think spiritual warfare is not real, listen, you have to understand something. There is an enemy who is very real from the beginning of time, and he has been trying to annihilate God's people, the Jewish people. It is the same exact script. Change the names, but it's the same exact script. And here is this guy who takes the script from the enemy and says, oh man, I'm going to have fun with this. I'm going to annihilate all of the Jewish people. How do we sit there and look at them? Look at the world today. Israel, right, becomes a nation in 1948. How do we not look at the world today? You, you don't even believe in God. You have no belief in religion, anybody. How do you not look at how this little country in the Middle East, in that part of the world, surrounded by, by all nations that hate them? And when we were there this summer, right, seeing the Palestinians, the strife, I mean, it, it was so palpable. 
to feel that and to see that, how can we as people not understand that these really are, and some things in life don't make sense, these are God's chosen people. For some reason, God chose them. This is real. There is a real war that is raging, and Satan is looking to take out the Jewish people. It's happening, right? Come on, even as we speak now, there are plans that are taking place that the enemy is trying to unfold to take out God's people. Goes all the way back. Thousands of years, we see the same exact theme. And you move on in the text, and I'm going to give you a story later I think you'll be very moved by. In verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr. That is the lot. Before Haman, to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. What does that mean? This means they actually, in this culture, ancient cultures, oriental cultures, they were very superstitious. So what they did was they would actually cast dye. And if there was some interesting omen or like when they cast these dye, if something came up that they said, oh man, this is, this is, this is something that we must pay attention to, that would be the day that they would execute the Jewish people. So what the text is telling us is this has been going on. This goes on for a year. A year where they're casting die, waiting for something, waiting for their opportunity, being very superstitious. When will the day come when we cast the die and we, we have to execute the Jewish people? Does that make sense? So thus I said to you, the Feast of Param that Jewish people celebrate in Esther and Mordecai, saving the, all the people, the Jewish people, it all goes back to this. All right, so th- this is the text and you can really see it here. So here it is at this time and they're going on and they're going on. Now you have to understand how crazy this is because Haman has this plan and look what happens in verses 8 and 9. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples and they do not keep the king's laws. Is he telling the truth? Just stop right there. Is he telling the truth? That's totally lying, right? Totally lying. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Now, what does that mean right there, that last part? That would have been one year's taxes of the entire empire that were brought in. That's how much money he's basically saying, I will give you if you let me destroy the Jewish people. Now, where's he going to get the money from? From the Jewish people. So he's going to take everything and he's saying, here, I'll give this to you. But he is lying. He is exaggerating. And how about this wonderful king, King Xerxes, right? Does he even investigate who the people are? Does he even know what his wife's nationality is? He is not the smartest guy in the world, okay? Doesn't ask any questions. Doesn't inquire. Doesn't say, what's the deal here? Who are these people? Who do you want to destroy in my kingdom? Doesn't ask anything. All he knows is that this guy, Haman, wants to destroy them. Okay? Now, once this, this is an important part of the text, you have to see. We're moving into chapter 4 now, skipping ahead. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, learning of Haman's plans, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Do you know in this culture, really fascinating, in this culture, 
if you were going, if you were mourning a calamity or somebody in your family died, right? If you had a disease, your body was ravaged by a disease, you would actually wear loose-fitting, dark, coarse clothing that was made of goat hair. They, people would actually take ashes, cold ashes, from a fire, and they would throw them on themselves, and everybody around would know that you were mourning something or that you were sick. People would actually sit on ash heaps, hard to believe, and throw ashes on themselves as a way. I mean, now listen, this culture is much more visual than I think than our culture. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, as a teacher, a lot of kids are visually stimulated much more I mean, the technology that we have in our culture today. But in this culture, especially everything was a picture. Word pictures were everywhere. So here is this guy who is mourning what has happened. Now you pick it up there and you see, go on in verses three and four, skipping verse two. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. You should underline that because we're going to get to that later. One of the best parts of the story that'll blow your mind. I'm going to drop a bomb on you at the end of this. That is, I can't wait to talk about it. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now you understand what that means. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Understand, she didn't know, there are characters, she doesn't know what we know, right? So we're reading the story, Esther doesn't fully understand, she doesn't know that this has happened with Haman, she doesn't know that what's going on with Mordecai, why he's upset, so she's going to try to uh, ascertain. So Esther's maids and uh, eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed, then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. So here is a guy that is in deep mourning. And in verse 6, we see that she sent one of her aides to go to him to find out what the situation was. So if you're wondering, that's what we're talking about here in, uh, in verse 6. Now, moving down to verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 8 first. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. Important part that I'm leaving out here. So this is Mordecai telling Esther, telling representatives to tell Esther, you need to, you got to go before the king. You have to tell, the, you have to go, you have to beseech the king on behalf of all the Jewish people. It's your job, it's your responsibility. You're there. That's, that's why God has put you in this position. So now we're moving on to verses 10 to 12. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. So what do we see here? Esther is still at this point. She's not the braveheart. She's not the warrior yet. She's going to come around. But here she is at this point in the story in chapter 4. She's afraid and rightfully so. She hasn't been with the king for 30 days. Think about his harem. All All these women that he has, she has not seen him. For 30 whole days, and she knows if she goes in unannounced, if she goes in without anybody asking her, that what that means is that she could die. So Mordecai now gets this message, right? And this is, the, this is one of the best parts of the whole book. It kind of is the, the, the climax. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. 
Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. One of the most famous passages from the Bible, right? We've heard this. Now, this is really, I guess, it's the high point of the book, narratively, theologically. This is the high point. And I want you to notice, this is wild. One commentator pointed this out. I didn't really see it this way. He said, the commentator said, she has two choices. Mordecai is saying to them, you can risk your life and go into the king and maybe lose everything, right? Maybe lose everything. Option number two is you don't go into the king and you do lose everything. Right? I never saw that before. He is giving her an incredible argument. Either way, Esther, if you go the second route and you don't go in and you choose to sit back and you don't take this risk right now, guess what? All of the Jewish people will be destroyed. Your only choice is, Esther, you need to go in before the king. This is it. This is your moment. This is your day. This is your time. Isn't that kind of crazy? It's awesome. So he says that to her and then she understands. Now, let's stop right here and talk about, let's, let's have some life application for us. Did a lot here, just going through the story. How many of you have a Mordecai in your life? How many of you in here have a tough, loving friend, somebody that can tell you the truth, somebody that is not going to shrink back when it's, it's difficult and you're going through a situation and instead of taking the easy way out and telling you what you want to hear, they're actually going to tell you the truth. She's a passive person here. If it's not for Mordecai in the story telling her the truth, if it's not for Mordecai saying, listen, I'm going to help build faith in you. If it's not for this guy, she probably never would have went before the king. So how many of us in here really have somebody that we can confide in? He's saying to her, listen, it's not about your wardrobe. It's not about the precious gems. It's not about the exotic fragrances. It's about something bigger. Who are you, Esther? Who are you? God has brought you to such a time as this. That's the first thing I I, I would say when when you look at this. And he issues this strong challenge. He's telling her, you have to do it. So who is it for you? Identify that person in your mind. Who is the person in your life that God has used or is using right now that will give you and speak the truth into your life? When you're tempted to shrink back, who's the person that inspires you? Who inspires you? And you know what one of my favorite passages is? And I know another famous passage that we all know. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. I was thinking about it this week. You know what I said to myself? You know what this doesn't say? This does not say as cotton sharpens cotton. Cotton, so one person sharpens another. Does it say that? How long, Pastor Joe, would we have to like, right, right, rub the cotton together? Honestly, how long would you have to have that happen to sharpen? You can't do it. It doesn't happen that way. But when you take iron and put iron on iron, sparks are going to fly. And what this means is there are relationships that we have. God has put people in our lives. And sometimes there's friction and sometimes things aren't easy. But I'll tell you what, I don't want yes people around me. I want people, my close circle of friends, I want people who are willing to tell me the truth about my foibles, about things that I need to change when I'm wrong in a situation. Whatever it is, I want people to tell me the truth. And you know what? I think we live in a world, in a culture, we don't want people to tell us the truth. 
And we don't want Mordecai's. We want to come to church and tell each other, everything's great, my life is great, everything's good, kids are good. Come on, we need to speak truth to each other. It's biblical. This is the gospel. Who is the Mordecai for you in your life? And let me ask you another question. Do you, do you look at that person and then say, you know what? I'm not hanging out with that person anymore. Somebody tells you truth. Somebody says, you know what? I see this in your life. I see this character flaw. I see how you handle this situation. Maybe you could have done it differently. And how many of us shrink back and say, I'm done with them. I'm not hanging out with them anymore. Because you know what? They gave me truth and I didn't want to hear truth. Who challenges you? Who challenges you in your life? So easy to go the lone ranger route to kind of just say, you know, I'm going to fly solo. So how does God build great faith in people? He uses Mordecai's. He uses people to challenge us when we don't want to be challenged. There are times in my life I don't want to be challenged and I get challenged. Somebody will say something to me. I went through a situation recently. I had some friends, some people in here. I don't have to name them, but people that I brought a situation up and people were giving me truth and their honest opinion. And you know what? Some of it, I didn't want to hear it. It wasn't pleasant. I didn't enjoy it, but I knew they loved me enough to tell me the truth. I knew they loved me enough. How come, can I even take this a step farther? You know, and we've, met, we've mentioned this before. How come when we make decisions in life, this, I, I don't understand this, I guess because I feel I'm so inadequate in so many areas in life, I want to lean on people that know more than I do. How come we don't set up our own clearness committees? We've talked about how come we don't put people around us and ask them questions, allow them to ask us questions about situations in our life. How come we fly solo? How come we think we have all the answers? How come we don't realize we have blind spots? Gets old. And you wonder why people's lives and they, and they go off track and you, and you want to say to them, who did you process this, this with? You took that job, you bought this house, you did that. Did you ask anybody? Listen, I've made plenty of mistakes. I'll be the first one. I've made mistakes and I haven't processed things. But as I get older and I move into the second half of life, I realize more and more how I need other people and how inept again I am at making certain decisions in certain areas of life. I don't trust myself. I trust other people that know more. People that have been down a road I've never traveled. Come on, that's, that's real. That's, come on, that's reality. But still, I know I say that, and for many of us, we're just still going to do the same old thing. It's the truth. So that's one, right? Do you have a friend, a trusted friend of friends or people that you... I'm not talking about, hey, I go to a small group. I'm in a hill house. I'm not talking about just going to a hill house and you, you, you talk about things that are on your chest. I'm talking about really going deep with people outside of a hill house. The real problems, the real issues of life. That's what I'm talking about. Number two, the second thing I think God uses in our lives, I think, to make us grow and build great faith. Know what it would be? Suffering, hardship, crisis, right? Things that we don't want. Does anybody wake up? Did you wake up this morning and say, you know what? I hope I suffer today. Anybody you woke up today and said, I hope I suffer? No, I don't see any hands. Yeah, that's, that's what I expected. But you know what, and you know this too, and you've heard this, this isn't anything new, I'm not preaching anything that's really new, but it needs to be repeated because we forget it over and over. I listened to, when I was away, I listened to over and over, I listened to Francis Chan, he spoke at Liberty University, and I think my brother passed it on to my mom, and I was so moved by it, and I said, you know, I have to share some of this, and I was so moved by it, because he talked about the underground church in China. And he talked about how he was with these pastors, these people that just so loved God. And they had five pillars. And the fifth pillar was to embrace suffering as a community. 
embrace suffering as a community was one of the pillars that they lived by because they rejoiced in their sufferings. Look what, you, look what it says. Look what it says here in James 1, 2, and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, that perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Suffering. He talked about it. These passages, he talked story after story. He talked about his own life. That's what makes us truly grow. Suffering. We don't want it. We turn away from it and we look at life. We say, you know, why did you quit? It was just too hard. I was suffering. I didn't want to do it anymore. It wasn't worth it. That's the culture we live in out there. That's, that's right. Come on. Let's be honest. That's what we live with. I read the Bible and I see suffering is talked about and re- people are rejo- rejoice in your sufferings. I see it in every New Testament book. It's all over the Bible where you see people and they suffered and they said, consider it a joy. Count your blessings. I see the apostles and what would happen? They'd be beat. They'd be thrown out of court. And what were they doing? They're jumping up and down because they're suffering. In the midst of their hardship and the people that, that, are, that are sentencing them, the people that are beating them, don't understand it. Who are these people? What's wrong with them? You know, they understood that there was coming a time that they would be recompensed for their attitude and the fact in the midst of their suffering that they would be faithful to the gospel. We want to feel good gospel. We want to feel good gospel. We want everything. Oh, come on. Tell me something good, pastor. Tell me what I can get. We live in this. I I turn on the TV. I'm in Florida. I'm disgusted. I got nauseous because most of the the people I saw, I didn't even know half of the people, but I'm watching a few on Sunday morning last week. And I said, oh my gosh, how much prosperity gospel is out there? How much? I can't take it anymore that this is the gospel. Come to church. God will give you your wildest dreams. Just come to church. Just come in. Give it to the basket. Oh, man, God's going to give you a lot of money back. That's not the gospel. That's not how we grow. It's through suffering. It's through pain. It's through hardship. Francis Chan said, I call suffering into my life. And listen, you may say that's kind of crazy. But like you look in the story too. God, God uses Haman for the good of the Jewish people. Uses Haman in the midst of all the Jews. Says, you know what? I'm going to use him. To purify a people. He uses it in our lives. Stop running from the suffering. Stop running when life doesn't go the way you want. There is a God who knows and sees and knows what we need. And says, I will be there in the midst of your suffering. Chase after me. I know it's hard. And when it's trying to get released from sin, right? Oh, I I just want to be released from this. I want to be released from the uh, the bondage of pornography. I want to be released from the bondage of of drugs and alcohol. And you know what we do? People try and they try and they try. And then when it doesn't work, oh man, this is too hard. This is suffering. I don't want to suffer. Yeah, you know what? That's the Christian life. There's suffering. There's a cross. There's death and burial before resurrection life. Enough of the crossless Christianity. Embrace it. It's a teacher. It's, it's, we're, following, we're following one who suffered beyond belief. That's the path that we are to traverse. But we avoid it. Can I go back to the story now? Now remember when I told you, in, in, if you remember, in chapter 4, verse 3, it said there, there's a reference to, do you want me to show it to you again? I'll just show it to you again. There is a reference here to fasting, weeping, and wailing. You remember that? Okay. So that was the response of the Jewish people here. 
Then in, I want you, we'll go forward now. Then in verse 14, we see Mordecai use this term. Who knows? Maybe you're the one, right? So let me fast forward, make sure everybody's on the same page, right? Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now here's the bomb that I, I never knew this before. There's only one other place in the Bible where this language is actually used. You know where it's used? It's used in the book of Joel. This is kind of what, this is called a remez in a sense, okay? He is quote, he is saying one thing, but he's quoting from somewhere else in the Bible. And I never realized how Esther, she's a Jewish girl, how well she knew the scriptures, how well she knew the Old Testament. Now follow this. Look what it says in Joel 2, oops, Joel 2, 12 through 14. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. Right. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. He's giving her this text. He's saying, Esther, who knows what will happen if you go in? But I know that he's a gracious God. And I know that he can forgive people of their sins. And I know that he cares about us. I I know that we're the chosen people. You have to believe this, Esther. Don't capitulate. Don't acquiesce. This is not a time to shrink back. This is a time to move forward. This is a time to believe that God is here. This is a time to believe that you have a destiny. And you've been brought here for this moment right now. How many of us in here believe the lie of the enemy that, that he says to us all the time? You don't have a destiny. In God, you don't have a destiny. You're meaningless. Your life is insignificant. And I would tell you that is from the pit of hell. Every single one of us in this room has a destiny. God has a plan for us. He has numbered the hairs on our head. He knows exactly where you are. He knows what you're going to do. He's looking for a people that will take risks. He's looking for a people that will be obedient. He's looking for a people that will trust him in the midst of a tough and arduous situation, a tough world to live in, a secular culture that tells us everything about the Bible and Christianity is crazy. Come on, real faith. Come on, real strong faith. Can I digress one second too? This is good though, right? I mean, this is, this is interesting. I love this. There's more. Her response is wild. You know, how many of us, do I do this? Yeah, I'll talk about it. Okay. Having a conversation with myself. It's normal. <clears throat> how many of us, you know somebody that is super Christian? You know somebody's super Christian. They just quote Bible verses. They just, I mean, they, they they walk around. They walk on, you know, they don't walk on the ground like the rest of us. And when they're at work, whatever, and they just they give people the gospel. They turn people off while doing that. How many of us now you know what I'm talking about? How many of you know a super Christian? All right, I know we don't have any in here, right? But really, you know somebody that is. And how many of us in, in trying to talk about build, building real? I'm talking real deep faith. I always looked at it. C.S. Lewis helped me with this. I'm not smart enough to think this. Um, I looked at it and said, C.S. Lewis wrote something. He said, you know, it's interesting when you look at people and you say, I look at people like that and they pass out tracks and they, 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 they're too, I don't know, they're too, too in your face with it. I say, they're too Christian. Have you ever looked at it that way, right? They're too Christian. C.S. Lewis talks about that. They're too Christian. And I said, wow, I never looked at it that way because I always looked at it and said, maybe I'm not Christian enough. Maybe I just like, I sit back and maybe I'm supposed to be a little more aggressive in my faith. And I'm not saying, listen, don't walk out of here and hear me say, hey, look, we're not supposed to be talking to other people about the life of Christ that lives inside of us. No, 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 we are. 
But I'm saying when it's over the top sometimes and it turns people off, I looked at people and through C.S. Lewis, like giving this to me, that we see life and I say, man, I don't like those kinds of people. They're, they're too Christian. And he said, you know what? Those kinds of people aren't Christian enough. And the problem is Christianity has been, and this, this breaks my heart, but so many people out in the world, how they identify Christians, even when I see these politicians and they talk about God and I'm like, it, it doesn't, I'm sorry. I know I'm not supposed to talk about political stuff in church, but it doesn't do much for me. Not all of them, I'm saying some of them. And I'm obviously not going to give names, but I look at politicians and they just kind of use God's a means to an end. How do I get in office? Oh, I can use God and I can talk about God. And uh, why am I saying that? Am I going to get in trouble for that? I may. But, um, but really, and I say, you know what? I, those people, they're not Christian enough. When I see the West Barrow Baptist people and they, they, they protest everything down south, I see people going outside and they're protesting abortion clinics. And I'm not, I'm pro, listen, I'm pro-life. Don't hear me say that. But it's the way in which we do things. And you know what? I see those people and they're judgmental. It goes back to unchristian, the book. And the world is right, friends. Can I just talk to you? The world's right. We're way too judgmental. We're homophobic, right? Oh my God, did I just, yeah, I said that. We're way too judgmental. We're homophobic. We're just afraid of everything. And the world looks at us and says, they are the most closed-minded people in the world. And they're right to an extent. They are right. We are supposed to be more Christian. And you know what I want to do? I want to show them the love of Jesus. I want to chase after him. I want to be so generous with people. They go, what's wrong with this guy? Why does he do that? I want to love on people at work. And I want to shove the gospel down their throat. But I want to shove love down their throat. And I want people to ask, what, what, why, do you, why are you doing this? Because my life was touched by another life. And I've never been the same. And it's real. And it's here. And you can experience it. The more I get to know Jesus, the less self-righteous I become. The less judgmental I become. That's what it means to be Christian. I want to be more Christian in that respect. And I'm sick and tired of the Christians out there that everybody in our culture says that's who we are. We are not them. We are not to be them. Deep faith. I told you that was a, wow, that was a big digression. But something, it was good. Thank you. I needed that. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's your, your mom too, pastor and your, your mom. So... I don't really know how good it was, but um, okay. Can I finish this then? In 2, 14 and 15, Esther, 14, 15 and 16, sorry. Then Esther told them the reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in uh, Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days. This is like Thanksgiving, by the way, for the Jewish people. This is the night before Passover. This is crazy. Uh, fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, what is she really quoting from? You want to see what she quoted from? This just, I get goosebumps thinking about this. Look where she's quoting. Remember, I told you he quoted from Joel 2, right? 12 through 14. Look what she's quoting from. Joel 2, 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. This is it. This is my time. I will not shrink back. I will go into the king. And if it means if I perish, I perish. Can you imagine the smile on Mordecai's face and the other people? They knew exactly what she was saying. She was saying, I've been brought here. It's kind of like, it reminds me of like the matrix with Neo and Morpheus. It's like, is 
is she the one? Is she the one? And then when she says this, everybody knows she's the one. Right? That's what it is. You know that point in the Matrix at the end when they're like, he's the one. It's true. That's what this is. If they made, a, they made a movie and it wasn't great. If I was helping, I don't know anything about film, but if I was making the movie, we'd have a scene like that. And I'd say, let's watch The Matrix for inspiration and then we can make a scene that rivals that. Okay. <laughs> wow. You know what's interesting too about this? Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is an is a Engl- incredible English minister who lived in the 20th century. You know what he said? He said... The great mark of every single revival in Christian history, it did not include great preaching, although there was some great preaching, right? Charles Finney, Second Great Awakening, Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards in the First Great Awakening. He said it was not great music, right? Great music. A lot of these, I mean, the Wesley brothers, they did not include, all include meeting together, although they did meet in buildings. They had one thing in common. You know what it was? Guess. What was the one thing, all of every Christian revival, every great movement of God in history, one common denominator? Prayer. Prayer. People who got on their knees, people that were fasting, people that were praying, people that were saying, God, we need to turn from our sinful ways. We need to seek your face. We need to get on the ground and humble ourselves. We are a sinful people. And I can watch last night, I'm watching all these politicians in their speeches. And I'm like, man, we, this is the time in America we need to get on our faces and repent. This is the time. I'd like to see a politician get down on their knees and repent for all the sins and crimes in our country. When will that happen? Crazy, I know. And you're looking at it going, that's never going to, I know it's never going to happen. But why can't we dream about a world where God can move again? Why can't we dream? Because it's not going to happen. I don't care who you put in office. I don't care who's in the Oval Office next year. I don't care. There has to be a real move of God. And it starts with people like us in a little church like this. It starts in other churches. And we gather together and we embrace suffering. as You know, if we embrace suffering as a group, we're unstoppable. If we get on our faces and fast and actually pray and really believe that God can move... Why wouldn't he? I think he's waiting. He wants more people to look to him. You want me to pour out my spirit again? You want a third great awakening? It's not just going to happen by you just sitting there and coming to church on Sundays. It's only going to happen when you seek my face. And so here she is. I'm I'm at the end of the sermon. But I want to leave you with a story because I see here a woman whose life changes from this point on. We have one more sermon in the series next week. But I see a woman who has a choice to make. Will she say yes or no to God? Will she turn aside? Will she say, I, you know, I just don't have the courage to do that. I'm not bold enough to go before the king. And it reminded me of a story that took place in World War II. Came across it in a wonderful book I was reading. Uh, it's called Deep Faith. And the author tells a story about a pastor. Let me show you some pictures here. This man's name is Andre Trokmi. He is a, a pastor of a group of Protestant Christians in France during World War II. And the name of the area was La Chambon. And in this area, a pretty remote area that was difficult to get to, some amazing things happened. You've all, how many of you have seen the movie Schindler's List? Right? You all know, saved hundreds of, of Jews. Well, this is a story that I had never heard before and was quite moving. And it made me think about every time I read the book of Esther, I think of the genocide. I think of what happened in the Holocaust. 
So this man was incredible. He stepped into the pulpit on June 23rd, 1941, which just happened to be the day before, this is the day before June 22nd, the French signed an armistice with the Germans. They had capitulated. They were done. They were putting up the white flag. We, we surrender. Northern France would be occupied by the Germans, but Southern France would be free. The Vichy government, this little puppet regime, right? The, the, they would rule things there. Here's a uh, picture of, you want to get an idea? Oops, sorry. I'll give you this one first. So he, the air was very thick. It, the tension was palpable. And here this pastor, Andre Trochme, a man in his 30s, gets up and addresses the people. And the people are waiting after what has just happened the day before. What will he say to us? What will be our fate? What does our future really hold? And these are the words he said, some of the words. He said the duty of Christians was to use the weapons of the spirit to resist the violence that will be brought to bear on our consciences. That's what he said to them, right? He went on to say, we need to resist whatever and whenever our adversaries demand us obedience contrary to the gospel. When he said those words in this little church building in France, there's the map. You can see it there on the bottom. Right, right over here, this is La Chambon, in this area right here on the map. I don't know if anybody's ever been there. I need to go there at some point in my life. By the end of the story, you'll go, wow, I'd like to go too. So here in this area, at one o'clock in the afternoon, every single day, a train would come through town. Jewish refugees, people that knew they didn't want to get sent to the concentration camps. They were on the run from all over Europe. Word got out that there was a place in Europe, in France, that you could actually go and find refuge, a city of refuge. So at one o'clock, here they are. They're starving. They're cold. They're, they're holding all of the, everything that they own in this world. They're holding with them, getting off the train, and they have no idea when they get off the train. Will somebody be there for them? Is it really true that La Chambon is a place that they can go and find refuge? They didn't know that, but they got off. And guess what? In this town, this is incredible, in the actual town, 4,500 Jews would be saved. Over 1,000 kids would be saved during World War II from the Germans. The town only had over a little over 3,000 people. 4,500 Jews. They took people and they put them in, in barns. They had, you know, uh, trap doors and behind walls in their homes. Over, come on, 4,500, and you don't even, I'm looking at your faces, you didn't know this story either. Are you kidding me? How come? And the French government's done a terrible job of recognizing these people. The French government, I'm giving you more detail than I was going to, but it's, I, I think you're with me. The kids that were there in this area, in Le Chambon, they actually, the Vichy government, the government said, what are you doing? The kids aren't participating. They're not paying homage to the, to the Nazis. They're not following all the rules. What's going on here? The kids, the kids from this community wrote a letter. We will not stop. We will keep harboring the Jews. So what was once private, what was supposed to be hidden, was brought out into the light. The French government realizes, oh my gosh, there is a community of people. They're hiding Jews, Protestants, Christians, Christians. They said, we will risk our lives to save people that are of a different ethnicity. They're different as a different religion. It doesn't matter. That's the gospel. Risked their own lives. And you know what's wild when you go there today? Why well, I want to go? I just want to talk to some of these people, descendants, whoever I want to talk to people. Because if you go there, they talk about the story. 
But if you said, hey, can I see one of the rooms or can I see one of the trap doors that are there? They'll tell you, nah, you can't see where we hid people. You know why? Because we may have to use them again. We may have to use them again. Because history kind of repeats itself, friends. Look at the world. There is coming a day. The day is coming. Things are happening. Look, things are happening quickly. It is not a time for us to be asleep. You could wake up tomorrow and there could be something tumultuous that happens in the Middle East. It's not far-fetched. Right at, We're sleeping right under our nose. Things are happening again. I said it earlier in the sermon. There is an enemy. He's looking, he's, he's looking around trying to see how he can destroy God's people. He's looking around to see how he can take us Christians out. It's the same exact script. He's just looking for different people. Change the names. It's the same thing. No different. But there was a group of people that were willing to do this, just like Esther. Hey, friends, I don't know what your future holds. I don't know what my future holds. But what if there was a time, I, I said it to Pastor Linda, and she said, what, what would I do? I don't know if I could do that. Would we have enough faith and trust in God and risk our lives for other people? Would we do that? I don't know. I just know I want, to, I want more of him. I don't want a life of ease, comfort. I sat in, and I sat in Disney World this past week. Again, the happiest place on the planet. And I said in a sense, before I left, I had this fire in me. And it kind of like, at times it would dissipate during the week. And I know, again, I'm on vacation. Not really vacation, but I'm there. And I said to myself, I'm like, man, how easy the fire can go out. How quickly the fire can dissipate. I want more of it. Lord, please put the fire inside of me. Lord, I don't want to be like the virgins. They don't have any oil in their lamps. I want the oil in my lamp. I want to be ready because the king is coming back. He's coming back for a bride that is spotless, for a bride that is ready, for a bride that is praying and fasting and believing, a bride that will risk, a bride that will love, a bride that will share the gospel with everybody and anybody. That's what he's coming back for. Is that us? Pastor Linda is going to share the table. I'm not going to share the table today. Do something different. James, I just want to tell you that I didn't say yes before to mother. I said yes before Jesus.
nutrients that grow. You see, animals that we eat, they die so that we live. It's the principal altar in the universe. You don't have to be a Christian. It's not just for Christians. It's the principle of God. And, and that's why I want us to just underline, because we've been hearing about it this message all morning. The cross. And the cross, as I said, is God's principle in a separate way, but we need to, we need our eyes open. Because like this, this table that we celebrate every, every day is the table with the principle of death and resurrection. Let me just say this to you. We don't suffer just for suffering. suffering. And just, just to underline, you have to suffer whether you're a Christian or not. Let's just get that straight. Okay? Suffering is part of life. <coughs> Jesus never once talked about the cross without talking about this. Yeah. We're not talking about suffering. Just for suffering's sake. We're saying that God is amazing wisdom when he's turned and turning the fall around. See as Lewis says, from simple good to complex good. He made man and man was good. But after the fall, now God has to make complex good. Now he has to take the, the evil and turn that around and make good out of that. That's evil. That's what gives God glory. So real, just short, just briefly now. So, so Jesus, this table is about the Lord who died and was, was resurrected. His surrender is what we, we live on. Behind this table is the surrender of the Son of God. He went in Gethsemane and he was faced with his with his death. And he said, Why would I why would I after sweating drops of blood? He said, Why would I shun from this or, or, or not? Um, he said, Because this for this reason I came into the world. You see, death and resurrection. Because of his surrender, here we live. Now we have a story of the woman we just heard about, Esther. Look at it this way. Esther, she has to die to herself and all her wishes and all her ideas and all her thoughts and all her fears. And then the three days, there's a fasting and prayer. What was that? Death. She too. Walked into death like the master did, and she went to get them. And she said, Not my will, but yours. And what happened to Esther? She went into the king's court, and you're immediately killed if you go to the, king, go to the king's court without yes. She took her life, and she, she died. She had to die of everything she thought. She died. The, the king raised his scepter. Esther came into resurrection. The cross, death, and resurrection is everywhere in our lives. Let's have our eyes open so that we can see it. And as, as, a, as Pastor was telling us this morning, it would keep us from feeling how it would, it would help us to be encouraged in our pain and suffering. That God is doing something. You see, in her death, for those three days, 
Jesus in that grave for three days, something was happening in the, in the mysteries of God. God was doing something in that grave. In the, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. He didn't raise himself. The Spirit was giving that woman faith. He was doing something in those three days. And when she was resurrected, she was a new person. Okay, let's go real quick to us. That's exactly true. Of the Because the Bible, I'm afraid that you hear me say it all the time. There's a Christian life. You know, James, one of the things you're battling and you were battling this morning is not just the secular culture that we're but it's the culture of the church. It's the culture of the church. And, and let me just tell you straight in a few minutes what I mean by that. Because we live in a culture, not just the world is in the church. And, and what James was describing in his own words, we're living in a church that doesn't want to hear about sacrifice, doesn't want to hear about surrender. I'm afraid you did a job of expressing it, James. And it's not our fault. It's not our fault. We normally want, of course, we want to be happy. And of course, we want a full life. But listen, God wants you to have a full life too. It's just how you get there. So here you and I are today, Lent. And Lent is a time we're not talking about the cross, death and resurrection in your life and my life. What does it mean to you and me then? The cross has to operate in creation, in everything. It's the principle of love, whether you know it or not. Uh, 12-step groups talk about it all the time. They just don't use those words. But you have to die you have to join the Now, something very mysterious happened in Jesus' grave. It happened to you in the world of baptism. Listen to me, I promise I'm not going to preach it. We're almost home. But we've done to see this. You see, when you went into the waters of baptism, you're going into death. The waters represent death. And in that death, God is doing a mystery in you. You know what he's doing? You know what again is? Born again means that you're dying, and now a new life is coming into you. New impulses, new desires. Something, something new happens. May I pass to you a minute? If there's never been a time that something happened on your inside, where some new impulses and new desires rose up in you, you better find out. Forgive. But let me just tell you something. 
if you want the deep faith, if you want the real Christian life, it takes surrender of your heart. It means, listen to me, there has to be a day when your life passed from your hands into his. And I sit with people all the time, and the first thing I can think of is, they've never believed in their life to Christ. They've had their sins forgiven, but their life is still theirs. Now, that's not criticism, it's an observation, but this is the news, and this is what we should do. I want you to know that this is the pillow that I lay my head on. I want you to know that surrender is the most, is the best thing that ever happens in my life. Let me tell you why. Pastor Tom used this verse last week, and he was talking about being ashamed of the gospel. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Now, this next verse, I want you to know, is one of my life's verses. This is the verse I left Jennifer Roth in college. I left John Roth in college. I left James Roth in college, Joe Roth. This is the verse that I lived with. And let me tell you why. And let me read it for you. For I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which is committed to him. Unto that That's Amen. my pillow. Amen. And when things get rough, I can go back and say, but Lord, I committed that kid to you. I committed that situation to you. I can rest and put my head on the pillow tonight because you know what? No problem. I committed it to you. Brothers and sisters, tell me you love me anyway, no matter what I said. Alright. You can't me to hear it. Don't expect him to keep what you haven't given him. Right. Don't expect all your financial needs to be taken care of if you're not doing your part and you're not your finances to Don't expect your kids just to grow up and just to grow up and love God. You're the kid. There needs to be an actual act of committing our lives to God in every facet. And then, and then. It's moment by moment after that. Okay, I'm going to tell you something that somebody's going to hear in here now. It's going to change their life. It took me years to get this truth. The will to do good, the will to love God, is a gift to the new man, to the new you. It's a gift from us. But the power you get moment by moment. Abide in me and I in you. As far as the real Christian life is concerned, it's moment by moment, depending on his life. All the time. Lord, live through me today. Lord, I commit this day to you, my life to you. Everything I have belongs to you. Can I tell you, you don't own a thing, you don't own a person, you don't own a house, you don't own a thing in this world. You own nothing except God in this world. And He is the source. And if you'll give, let me just tell you something. Whatever you have, your kids, your marriage, your home, it is my Savior in His hand that is in yours. Yeah. 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 
table of surrender this night. There's an old hymn we used to sing that doesn't we'll make it in the hymns today. We'll make it in the music room today, I'm afraid, in the churches today. But this is the way it goes. Have fun on way. Have fun on way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. <laughs> Mold me and make me after thy will. When I'm winging, yield it and still. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Search me and try me, Master. Yes. White as snow, Lord, wash me just now, as in my presence, humbly. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Wounded and weary, help me, I pray. Power, O power, surely is thine. Touch me and heal me, Savior divine. Have thine on thine own way. Absolute sway, fill with my spirit, till all shall see Christ only, always living in me. The life you and I were meant to live was to show Jesus and let God live through us that the world could see through one more person. Say, I don't know, there's something about him. I touch something about him. He's something different about him, and he needs to be Jesus. So right now we're going to come and we're going to share the table. And this is what I want to encourage you. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. For some people in this room, you've never really given your life to Christ. Maybe you've accepted the fact that he's forgiven your sins, but you've never really had a day where you've been born. Where you said, my Lord's all the rest, peace. Knowing you don't have to keep yourself. I can't tell you how it's best for you. Three o'clock in the morning, I can't tell you what it means to somebody who knows that it's in his hands. Some of you, today at this table, this Lenten season is the time of death and resurrection. Die in your own life. Die, die living your own way. Die you having deciding what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. Die to your right to own yourself. Consecrate yourself to the Lord. Some of you, you've done it before, but like me, you need to do it over and over again. And sometimes I realize I've got more to alter and I'm living my life again. For some of us, we need to just renew that commitment and renew that consecration. This Lent, let's celebrate the real Easter. Let's celebrate the fact that Jesus came. His life now through You didn't just need your sins forgiven. That would be like destroying all the factories that manufacture guns and and leave your guns. I mean, we still have all the problems, right? Our sins are forgiven, but I still have a factory that makes sense in me, right? Now I've got to walk with God, surrender my life, and learn how to die daily to my old life and let the life of Jesus. Oh, Father, this is so over our heads, over my head. But this Lenten season, we hear you, we hear Pastor this morning, imploring us to be an Esther. Oh, thank God for the people in the Bible, Lord, for their stories. They're not just there for us to read those stories to our kids. They're there to tell us about real people that lived and had the same struggles we had and have. And yet they found you in the and it made all the difference in the world.
brother, because Esther's, of Esther's commitment and her obedience. People were saying, because Lord Jesus, because of your commitment and your surrender and your obedience, we're saved. And now, as we partake of your, the emblems of your shed blood and broken body, we want to, for all those in this room that, that feel or resonate to these words this morning, we want to consecrate to you afresh our spirits, our souls, and our bodies, our lives, our past, our present, and our future, all that we are. All that we've been, all that we've we take it out of our hands and give it to you. The only safe place that you can ever be. You are the keeper. We commit to you on the ground that you be. podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.